So the, the movie Unbreakable is the uh, it's the story of Elijah Price. So Elijah Price is uh, someone, as you can see, that he gets born, um, and he's born with uh, type one osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a condition, according to the movie, that uh, causes bones to break easily. And he goes on this life mission where he will actually search for someone who doesn't get broken like he does, because every time he falls over falls down the stairs, he has multiple fractures. And so he's on this mission to find someone who doesn't get broken like he does. And he finds this guy called David Dunn, who's played by Bruce Willis in the movie, who appears not to get broken. And his aim and his mission is, and he says this to Bruce Willis at one point in time in the movie, in a scene in the movie, he says, if there's someone like me that get, gets broken all the time, there has to be someone else who's the opposite of me that doesn't get broken. And someone here sent to save us, someone here to help everyone else in the world. And this is the great hope, is it not, of uh, Christianity. The great hope of Christianity is that we're all born broken, but there's someone who's been sent to bring about healing. Someone who's been sent to help those of us who keep getting broken. So today what I want to talk about is I uh, want to talk about discontented brokenness. And this is the next section in our uh, series on Hebrews we've been doing for the last little while. But before we start and we read the scriptures, I want to uh, read you a quote from a guy called John Frame. This, this guy's a heavy. If you like reading heavy books, he's got a sensational book called The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. And some of you go, that's not sensational. I can tell by the title. But it's very deep and it's very, very helpful. He makes this comment about the Bible. He says, teaching in the New Testament, and I think also in the Old, is the use of God's revelation to meet the spiritual needs of people, to promote godliness and spiritual health. Alright? This is really, really important. The really interesting thing about all of us here in this room is we're all probably sick in a way that we don't know. Alright? No one's completely healthy in this room. And that's why it's good that you came to church. Because the goal of coming to church, hopefully... Your goal is, I need to get more healthy. And this is how I'm going to get more healthy, by coming to church and hearing what God's got to say. So I'm going to read Hebrews 12, verse 12 to 17. Therefore, now, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's a therefore? All right? Just before this, in Hebrews 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews, he's basically saying, therefore, because you're in a race, because you have a good dad who disciplines you, because there's going to be troubles in life, because this whole race thing is a marathon, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he decided to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think this passage teaches us three things. This passage teaches us to pursue healing for brokenness. This passage teaches us where brokenness comes from, and it also teaches us that some brokenness is terminal. I'm going to start here. This passage teaches us to pursue healing for brokenness. Let me tell you a story about my life. This is an interesting one, I think. So, I'm maybe a last teacher by trade, right? So I thought, hey, we're going on this camp at the coast. 
and I've never done skimboarding before. So what we're going to do, how about I build a skimboard, because that'll save money and I'm kind of Presbyterian. Anyway, so down in the woodwork room just uh, over here, I actually spent a bit of time and I built myself a skimboard. I got a couple of layers of uh, five ply and I kind of glued them together. I thought this is going to be cool. And uh, I came up with a couple of fellas on this camp on the Saturday afternoon and we, we said, right, let's, let's get out there and let's just go hell for leather with this skimboard and see how much fun we can have, right? We start flinging this skimboard out for the life of us, we cannot get the hang of it, right? So the thing just kind of keeps digging into the sand, which is a bit of a problem because if you run in at about 20 k's an hour and then it stops and you're trying to land on it, it becomes problematic. The, uh, the really interesting thing was uh, the first casualty was Nathan Gilmore. <laughs> so uh, we're just, you know, young dudes, it's like this thing's not working because we're not running fast enough and putting enough into it, all right? So we're, we're hitting this thing as hard as we can. It's just jamming into the sand, stopping, and we're just going, you know, and because you, you're trying to skim on like about an inch of water, okay? So you come off, you're going straight into hard sand. That's kind of how it works. So he went down first. He ended up twisting his ankle, and he had all the, the, the chorus of people who were giving him mercy and compassion, and they kind of, they kind of let back off to the campsite. And I was there with my mate, and uh, we just thought, well, we... That's not going to deter you, all right? We just we've got to go at it harder, right? So I ran up to this scene on one particular occasion, and I jumped on it like this, and it just stopped. And basically, what happened was pressure went through my left toe and pushed my left toe downwards into the left. So what do you reckon happened to my foot? It went downwards into the left, <laughs> right? And it's not meant to go downwards into the left. And uh, I got up, and my foot was pointing downwards into the left. <laughs> And I thought, that's not right. And I thought, I thought it was just dislocated. So uh, I thought, that's, I'm just going to pop it back in and it'll be fine. So I test up my car and my foot just popped back in. And it was a bit sore after that. Um, and I, I, I said to my mate, I said, I think I'm out. I think that, that's going to be it for me. He actually, he physically only had one ligament left in his ankle. The other two had busted and shriveled away. So, and he goes, no, it's cool. I'm going to keep going. It's good call. Because you've only got one left, you want to use that one up. <laughs> so I walked back to camp, and um, there is a romantic side of this. Right? This was actually the weekend that I met my wife. I wasn't obviously married to her at that point in time, but I met her. And um, she, uh, she was uh, doing x-ray at, at, at the base hospital, right? She took the x-ray and then went and saw the uh, orthopaedic surgeon, and the orthopaedic surgeon said, where is this guy? Is he laying in a bed somewhere? And she goes, no, he's not. He's just sitting on the table in there, he's just walked in from the outside. Because what I'd actually done was um, snapped off the bottom, I don't know, three inches of my fibula, which is basically the, the pointy bit on your ankle on the outside, just snapped the bottom of that off. But the really interesting thing about that, right, and this is how it's relevant, is there's a lot of us, I think, that are limping and we've got a really significant problem, and other people can see it, but we don't think it's that big of a problem, all right? And that's why I've called this uh, message this morning discontented brokenness because I actually think that we work out a way to manage our brokenness and our pain even though we've got a massive big link. You see, people around me were saying to me, that looks like it's really sore and it was really swollen, like super swollen. Right? People going, that's really sore. I'm going, no, it's fine, really. It's fine. I don't want to have to wait for three hours in a waiting room somewhere. And there's an interesting mechanism that happens with humans. It doesn't happen as much as a physical level, but I think it happens at a soul level where people actually fight against healing. People actually don't 
want to be healed. They want to do it their way. They, they're happy to put up with things. They're happy to put up with a certain level of discomfort rather than actually go and get the wholeness and the healing that they're after. They say things like, I'm okay. I can manage. And I just want to ask you today, if you're one of those people and you know that you've got some dysfunctional stuff in your life and you say, I'm okay, I can manage, I'm resourceful, I would ask you today, is that all you're after? Really? Like, do you want to get to 70 or 80 on your deathbed and say, I cope? Really? Or do you want to say, God blessed me, God brought healing to me, I ended up in a place of healing and wholeness like I never even thought was possible? See, God's after far more for you and for me than someone who can manage, someone who can cope. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who works at uh, Team Challenge, and we kind of commiserated together because he said the biggest problem they have at Team Challenge is people get to the point where their pain's not that bad and they stop in the process of healing. And it's pretty clear to me, I think human beings generally want to get healing when it hurts, but as soon as they can manage the pain, they stop their desire for actually wanting to get healed. And God actually isn't in the business, in case you're wondering, he's not in the business of pain minimization. God's actually in the process of healing. He's not wanting to get you down to a level where you can pop a Panadol or a Panadine Fort or a Nurofen and you can get through life. That's not what he's on about. What he's on about is he's on about getting you to a point of healing and redemption. And you can see this coming through in Hebrews 12, verse 12 to 14. Read it with me as I read again. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. I mean, some people have got absolutely ridiculously pathetic handshakes. Is that right? It's like you give me a, it's like a wet noodle, you know, like a piece of pasta or something. And you just go, that's disgusting, you know. Put it back in your pocket. Because it's useless, isn't it? Isn't a drooping hand useless? It's limp. It's probably tired. And the writer of Hebrews would say to you today, lift your drooping hand. It's not about getting to heaven and getting to be where Jesus is isn't just about stumbling and falling over the finish line. It's actually about making it and finishing strong. That's what God's interested in doing. What's the next thing he says? And strengthen your weak knees. Anyone here got weak knees? I've had four arthroscopies to clean up cartilage in my knees. All right? And this year I started off in my office at the school. My knees are feeling great. Okay? And you know what happened is I sat on my office chair and I bent my legs right back underneath the office chair and then I started swiveling on it, which is really good when you've got problems with your knees. And you know what? My knees have been really bad for the last couple of months. Now, I'm not saying that for you to give me pity or compassion. You can do that later if you'd like to. I'm telling you that because when you've got weak knees, what do you want to do? You want to sit down. You just want to not move. You want to not do anything. And the writer of Hebrews would say, strengthen your weak knees. Don't give in to the impulse to become stationary. Get rid of the pathetic, tired habits that you've got. Strengthen. And then he says, he says, make straight paths for your feet. You know what he means by this? He basically means the, close, the shortest distance between two points is what? Straight line. Alright, so he's saying make straight lines for yourself, so you go the shortest distance. 
Who here knows that there's times in your spiritual walk with God where you're going there, 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 and you just go ten years down the track, you go, I think I could have made it in six months. And God says, so make it in six months. You know, and some of you would say, you probably are thinking, yeah, well, sometimes God's got to take you on a journey. Yeah, sometimes He does. But you know, I think a lot of times He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to take us on a journey. Is that true? Sometimes we make the journey. For, it's like, let's have some fun. Let's see some sights while we're here. It's like the Israelites in the desert, you know. It takes them 40 years to do something that could have happened in a number of weeks. I understand. And then listen to this. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Every single person, I'm absolutely persuaded, every single person in this room walks with the lame. At least. Maybe some are crawling at the moment. And God would say to you today, find the bits that are lame and get them healed. Alright? Because that's his gift. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's up to. And this is an individual exaltation, but I think even more than that, it's a corporate ex exaltation. Alright? What does that mean? It means everyone who comes to the project and says they're part of the project, you know what you need to do? Find the lame parts of the project. And some of you are going, I know where some lame stuff is, <laughs> like some of Sondergeld's jokes. Here are some of those, right? But here's the thing. Let's get the lameness healed. We've all got to work to sit together to bring healing to one another. So let me ask you this question. Why do you think so many people are reluctant to be healed? Why do people still want to do things on their own? You see, repentance, and this we talk about this pretty often at the project, repentance is about laying hold of God's goodness and God's grace to bring about change in your life. It's about turning away from the stuff that's actually destructive, which is worshipping anything but God, and turning to God who actually brings healing for you. And I would ask you the question, why is repentance so hard? There's probably some people here today doing some stuff and you need to repent. And there might even be some people today that are doing some stuff that need to repent and they don't even know how to do it. And they just go, I don't even know how to do this. I can't even get myself to the point where I'm ready to repent. I was listening to a message by Tim Keller a couple of days ago and he made this incredibly insightful comment. He was referring to a verse in the Gospels that says, since... The start, the kingdom of God has been coming violently, and the violent take it by force. And he actually made this comment. He said, Jesus came down from heaven and was the victim and suffered violence. And he calls us to violence as well. And he made this point. This is a kind of violence he said that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to the violence of a surgeon's scalpel. In that? The violence of a surgeon's scalpel is a violence that brings healing. Because isn't that true? You go under the knife, you're going completely out of control. True? I mean, I don't know anyone. There's a couple of times in my arthroscopy they said, look, we can just give you an epidural and you can stay awake. And I'm just going, I don't want to see where you're bending my leg to get into my knee. All right? So I'll be out to it, thanks. Totally out of control. Totally at the mercy of the professional who's looking after you. And the professional cuts you, don't they? 
I actually warned you. I hurt you. But it's a wounding and a hurting and a violence that leads toward healing, not a violence that leads toward brokenness. And Jesus would be calling all of us today to be gutsy about pursuing healing and being prepared to receive the violence that he wants to bring to you that's going to bring about your healing. And I would ask you, if you look at the last sentence there, strive for peace with everyone. I'll tell you, you know what would happen in the project if everyone was completely whole, completely who God made them to be? That would be the highest point of peace that we could reach in this group, true? Because when you've got wholeness and when you've got healing, you've got peace. That's just how it works. But notice here what the writer of Hebrews says, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I mean, it's a common complaint for people. I'd like to see God. I can't see Him. Who'd like to see God? Be honest. Well, you better just start striving or keep striving for holiness. You either start or keep. Because you don't get to see Him unless you strive for it. And you know what this is? It's sweaty holiness, right? It's sweaty holiness. It's hard work holiness. And the result of it will be peace. This uh, section of Hebrews is remarkably similar to uh, Isaiah 35, verse 3 to 4. It says this, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God who will come and who will save you. This is a prophecy that was in the context of the threat of Syria and Ephraim attacking Judah. And you know what the Isaiah's really saying? Is he saying, fear will stop you from following where God wants you to go. And if you look in the scriptures, you see these regular exhortations. Don't fear. Be courageous. Follow God. Act in spite of the fear. And I think that's still true for us. I think probably in a lot of this, there's a latent fear that if I actually gave myself completely to Jesus, I'm not sure I'm going to get what I want. We fear what may happen if we give ourselves totally to Jesus. What if it doesn't work out the way I want it to? And right there you're going to come back to God's character, true? Is he good? Is he good? Does he love you? Oh, come on. Does he love you? There you go. Does he want the best for you? Yes. Does he want the best for you for his glory? Yes, yes he does. Can you trust him? Yes. So give yourself totally. But it's not rocket science. You don't have to go to Bible college to work this out. I've been to Bible college, really. I haven't got a qualification from there, have It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's a good God. He loves you. He's with you. He's helping you. Puts a family around you. You can trust him. So just give it all. Number two, where brokenness comes from. Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's amazing. You know what? That's, that's an all play, right? I wonder if, if I had a, an individual conversation with you, whether you feel the responsibility of the person sitting next to you receiving the grace of God. Your job is to make sure they don't miss out. It's not just mine, that's your job too. 
And there's a sense in which if there's someone in this room that misses out on God's goodness toward them, His forgiveness, His releasing of power and help for them, it's our fault, isn't it? To some degree, according to this scripture, it's our fault. Because we need to be continually, feverishly, this is a bit like uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. So you ought to consider your brothers and sisters in the church. How can I make sure that they get God's goodness? Is that a good question? Now, I want to talk just for a minute about introverts and extroverts. Who's an extrovert? Put your hand up if you think you're probably more extrovert than introvert. Put your hand up. See, I was going to ask the introverts to put their hand up, but they probably wouldn't. <laughs> the extroverts, let me, let me say this. Biblically, you've got the, the idea that you can sin against God by committing sins, doing things that are not right. That are disobedient to him. But you know what you can also do to sin? You can sin by not doing things you should do. I think it's the book of James that says, to him he knows what he ought to do and he doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Maybe it's Romans, maybe it could be one of Paul's. An introvert mostly will sin by doing nothing. That tends to be men a bit too. Alright? But in terms of introverts and extroverts, I'll sin by not doing anything. Extroverts are tend to sin by doing too much. Alright? Now what are the two What's the summary that Jesus gave of all of the commandments? The first one was to love God and to love who else? Each other, your neighbour. Introverts will sin by loving themselves more than their neighbour. So is that, is that being too direct? Is it true? Yeah, because I'd rather be on my own. Which is really, I'd rather not. I'd rather be on my own. I'd rather be on my own island then serve anyone else. Hey, if you're an introvert, you're kind of, oh, that's a bit harsh. But isn't that the result? Isn't that the result? It's like, I'd rather be on my own than serve anyone. I'd rather be on my own than love anyone. At the extreme, I'm talking about. This section of Hebrews 12, verse 14 there, says it's an introvert's job and an extrovert's job. It's everyone's job to see to it that no one misses out on God's grace. So if you're busy having me time and there's no time for anyone else, I think you're sinning. And I think you need to repent. Now some of you might go, oh, it's all right for somebody else because he's an extrovert. All right? But I'm telling you, at, at, there's a huge slice of me that's an introvert. And I just try to be on my own most of the time. And if you spoke to any of the people at the church I used to be in Eldorat, and they saw the way that I relate to people at the project here, they'd just go, why didn't we ever see that at West Norman Presbyterian Church? And to be honest, they didn't see it because I was a selfish introvert that just didn't want to talk to people. And you know what? I was the guy who would say to people, I just don't like talking to new people. Girl, so start a church plan because you don't have to do that there. <laughs> Am I saying that I don't like talking to you people? No, I'm not. Like, if I come up in the end and how is he forcing himself to do this? <laughs> no, it's loving. Alright? And the scriptures are quite clear that Christ's love compels us. True? 
It compels us. And it compels us to discomfort. I'm going to be preaching again on this in a few weeks. In Hebrews 13, it, it, it specifically says Jesus went and he died outside the camp. And it's basically saying he was really uncomfortable, so let's everyone get out there and be uncomfortable. Anyone who's part of the project, anyone who's not, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the best place to be. C.T. Studd. Does anyone know who C.T. Studd is? He's a real stud. Yeah, no, I shouldn't say that, should I? C.T. Studd is, uh, was a missionary to China, but prior to that, he's actually quite famous. Do you know who he is, Daryl? Oh, Daryl. <laughs> You'll know why to see. C.T. Studd is an English cricketer. Alright? And he was actually in the inaugural... Ashes battle in 1882. He was part of the English team and they lost. <laughs> Stud ended up going to uh, China to be a missionary. But listen to what Stud says about making sure that people get the grace of God. Listen to this. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That, I mean, if we had 100 people here, who just said... I am absolutely, I'm going to go home from church today and my motto for the rest of my life, one of them is going to be, I'm going to make sure that no one around me misses the grace of God. Now the cool thing is if you're in a church where everyone's doing that, everyone's just going to get lots of help from God and from each other, true? And you don't have to be in a community group for it, but for it, but you're probably going to have to work harder if you're not. Structures are going to help you to do that. We could spend a whole message on this, right? I'm not going in, I'm going to keep going. Let's go on to the next bit. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. See, I think this is a bit bizarre. This is kind of like my kitchen rules meets fornication. All right, which I don't know whether those two connect at any other point in time. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you this section. That the writer of Hebrews is referring to Deuteronomy 29. 29, starting in verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart. Listen to this. This, is, this should be like a thunderclap for us, right? He blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I would put money on the fact that there's some of us here, maybe not willingly, necessarily, but there would be some of us here today that would be saying that in our heart. Oh, the grace of God is there. God's forgiveness is there. And that's true. But it may not be true in the way that you think it is. This, I think, ought to be a thunderclap for the Western church. We're more hindered than what we think. I, uh, I read a section, uh, I can't even remember what book I was reading it in. It might have been a Eugene Peterson book I was reading where he made the comment. He said, if you've only got part of Jesus, you've got none of him. If Jesus doesn't do parts. And what you actually find in the Old Testament, we're going to keep reading here, what you actually find in the Old Testament with Israel is not that they ever completely forsook the worship of God, they just added a whole bunch of other gods to him. And adding other gods to God is not a good plan, right? Because God's not interested in being involved at that point. So, let me ask you, do you think that, do you think I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart? 
continue on, verse 19. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. You hear God getting a bit cranky at this point? And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. So hopefully you're getting a bit of a sense like this poisonous and this bitter root is a big issue, all right? And you should be getting the sense that the poisonous and the bitter root is about worshipping other gods. Verse 22, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout and overthrow, like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebulun, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of, his great, of this great anger? The people will then say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and they served other gods and worshipped them. Other gods, sorry, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in their anger, in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are to this day. Everyone worships all the time. You can't stop worshipping. Human beings are not made to worship. Humans were made worshipping. So what happens if you stop worshipping Jesus is you just switch gods. Now if you had enough time to sit down with me and talk with me, you would find the gods that I worship when I don't worship Jesus. And if I had enough time to sit down with you, I would find out the gods that you worship when you're not worshipping Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to be really careful in a church that no one splits off and starts worshipping another God. Because as soon as someone starts worshipping another God, what's going to happen is the group is going to be defiled. You see, before there's idolatry on the outside, there's idolatry of the heart, as Ezekiel 14 says. This is a, a really common theme for us at the project here because at the bottom line, the bottom line of everything is that this is what the problem is. You worship cleanliness. You worship organisation, you worship resourcefulness, you worship chocolate, you worship food, you worship clothes, you worship your bank account, you worship the opinions of other people, you worship yourself. I think the first sin was self-worship. It wasn't worshipping God anymore, it was Adam and Eve worshipping themselves. And God really, big time, cares about worship and he cares about idolatry. And he rails against it. The whole way through the scriptures he rails against idolatry. And you know why? The main reason I think why he rails against idolatry is because of the effect that it has on the worshippers. There's a whole bunch of you here that probably don't even think you've got that big a problem because what idolatry does and false worship does is it blinds people to the reality of where they're at. That's just what it does. And you might sit there and you go, I don't have any issues. And everyone around you is going, yeah, he's got issues or she's got issues. I can see it. And it affects me and I get upset about it, but they don't think they've got any because that's what happens when you worship an idol. And this is taught in Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. 
They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Listen to this. Those who make them become like them. So do all those who trust in them. And there wouldn't be a person in this room that doesn't trust in an idol at some point in time. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to make you mute, blind, and deaf. Anyone here ever tried to go up to someone and you know they're in a dodgy place and you know they've been worshipping something that was more important than Jesus and they just won't listen? Has anyone ever done that? That's why, right? Because that's what it does. And chances are that some of us, there's at least some areas of our life that's broken and lame and drooping and people maybe have even come up, maybe your wife or your husband has suggested maybe there's something you need to have a look at and you say, no, I don't. Everything's fine, thanks. Don't ask an idol worshipper to see where their prob- to tell you where their problems are. Sometimes they'll know, but a lot of the times they won't because that's what it does. It makes them blind. Christopher Wright uh, has written a great big book on called The Mission of God. He's a, a theologian. This is what he says about it. He says, The primal problem with idolatry is that it blurs the distinction between the creator God and the creation. That comes out of Romans 1. It says humans either worship the creator or the creation. This both damages creation, including ourselves, and diminishes the glory of the creator. Since God's mission is to restore creation to its full original purpose of bringing all glory to himself, and thereby to enable all creation to enjoy the fullness of blessing that he desires for it, God battles against all forms of idolatry and calls us to join him in that conflict. Here's my tip. If our neighbour giving the grace of God, sorry, the way that our neighbour sometimes is going to get the grace of God is if we help to battle against their idolatries for them and the gods that they worship. Wright goes on to say, we need to understand the whole breadth of the Bible's exposure of the deleterious effects of idolatry in order to appreciate its seriousness and the reason for the Bible's passionate rhetoric about it. Now, you're probably wondering, what's all this got to do with Esau? Well, we're getting to it. This is sexual immorality and my kitchen rules. This is weird, right? And I'm going to try and stitch it together like no other commentator has that I've read. So you may not necessarily want to take this one to the bank, all right? But I reckon this is what's going on. I, uh, it was weird because when I was doing, uh, just prior to starting the preparation on this, I listened to I listened to a couple of messages by Tim Keller and he talked about uh, the, the mechanism of the way that sin actually works and it just made so much sense of this whole scripture for me. So I'm just going to put that out there. You can check it out if you like word biblical commentary and the expositors biblical commentary, their explanation, but I'm, I'm fine with that, right? But I'm just telling you this and we'll see, how, see if you're persuaded. Here's the scripture, Hebrews 12, 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, what has sexual immorality got to do with a good feed? <laughs> all right? Now, they come after it sometimes. All right, sometimes. Anyway, let's not even get into that. Here's the big problem. If you look through the scriptures, you're not going to find any details about Esau being sexually immoral. Right? Now, there's some Jewish tradition that suggests that he was sexually immoral. I think, uh, I'm just going off memory at this point in time, but I think he actually went and he married a couple of Hittite wives. I don't know whether that qualifies someone for that, but it's not really sexual immorality. 
in the classical sense. So there's a little bit of a problem with understanding what this is actually talking about. Now, let's have a look at what Esau did. Genesis 25. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So these are uh, Isaac's boys. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Must have been some pretty nice gear. Okay. Jacob said, some of your birthright now, which is all the inheritance, the blessing. Esau said, I'm about to die. And what use is a birthright to me, Jacob said. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Can anyone see sexual immorality in that? And maybe not on a surface level, right? But if I ask you something like this, if I said, can anyone see sexual immorality being like someone who acts in a sexually immoral way being similar to the way that Esau was acting here? Absolutely. All right? Because what typically happens with people who are sexually immoral is they toss away something that's supremely valuable, maybe not supremely, but hugely valuable for something far less valuable. Yeah, let me tell you what happened with uh, Esau. Esau was ruled by his desire for stew. True? His heart was ruled by his desire for stew. So at that point in time, if I was to say to you, what was the thing that was most important in Esau's life at that point in time? What was it? Stew. Stew. All right? Yeah, it sounds really dumb, because it is dumb. All right? But what became his God? Stew. Cooked meat. Spam. I don't know. It's just, I worship spam. <laughs> Not internet spam, like the spam in a can. All right? And you go, you're an idiot. Don't worship ham. Yeah, it wouldn't have been him, right? Because they were Jews. They're not supposed to eat that sort of stuff, right? But it's a bit of goat, maybe. Maybe a cow, a bit of beef. Just like some blade, you know? Some blade's been cut up and stewed for a while. It's a nice brew, probably. Obviously. And you know what's really interesting about all of this? Is if you actually get... If you actually go to uh, James chapter 1... Notice what James chapter 1 says about sin, right? It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, you just need to know the words lure and enticed, or lust, is not a word that gets used for it, has a sexual connotation in this context, the original word. Now, at the project, we believe in free will. Here's our definition of free will is that human beings always do the thing that they desire the most. All the time. And you can say to me, well, I've got a bad boss, and the boss said if I didn't do a certain thing, then I'd get the sack. So I don't have free will there. And I say, no, you have free will. The thing that you desire the most is keeping a job, and so you'll do what you need to do to keep a job. Does that make sense? We always do what we desire most. And you see here that James is saying, the way that sin starts is people desire something and it rules their heart. They get a lust for something in their heart. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, 
brings forth death. I think sexual immorality is a lot like what happened to Esau. I think there's a huge similarity. And I think, I've got a sneaking suspicion that maybe the writer of Hebrews is doing a similar thing to John's where he says, here's what's going to happen. You have a desire, and it's just like the whole sex, pregnancy, birth. Alright? That's what James has said. The desire, when it takes over, is the conception. Conception then is sin, and it grows to full term, and what gets born is death. And it's not just death in a physical sense, it's death all over the place. And you can see that it's death in relationships, it's death in families, it's death in marriages. Our problem is not that we want bad things necessarily, it's that we want good things too much. It's that our desires are inordinate desires. They're too big, they get out of proportion. And this is what happened with Esau. Some brokenness is terminal. For you know that afterward, this is verse 17 of Hebrews 12, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. One commentary I looked at actually said, if you look at um, the verb, the original uh, language verb, as to who was rejecting, Esau, you know who it was? It was God. Now Esau wanted to get his birthright back, but he couldn't get it back. His dad wouldn't give it to him. It's too late. I've given it to your brother. And it may be that this is what it's talking about, but it looks like what it's saying is what Esau did was a rejection of God, and God rejected him. Now this is scary. I think it's appropriately scary. I think the reason why Esau can't repent is because Esau just wants to get his birthright back. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I think we do that a lot too. You, you do something, you, you commit some kind of sin or you disobey God and your life starts to break down, right? And it's a bit like James chapter 1 where death is starting to happen in your situation. And you know what? You don't want the death, do you? I've got to stop the death. So if, if it's the last thing I do, I've got to stop the death and I'm going to get life back. But you know what? Repentance is not actually found in just wanting to get the life back. Repentance is found by turning back to God. And I think a lot of the time where our repentance malfunctions is that we just think, oh, I just want to get the good stuff back. I want to get the inheritance back. I want to get all the good stuff that God's got for me. But we don't actually turn a lot of the time and actually face God square on and say, I want things to be sorted out between you and I. Repentance is a scary thing because there's a scripture here in uh, 2 Timothy 2 which makes it sound like it's a gift that's almost out of our control. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And I'll submit to you today that I think repentance is out of your control. Does that mean the Bible doesn't say that you need to repent? No, it does. Everyone needs to repent. But repentance is outside of your control, and I think it's a gift. And you need to know that there's not always second chances. You might say, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but God forgives anyone. Absolutely, but let me say this. 
The issue with Esau was never God's forgiveness. The issue with Esau is that he couldn't repent properly. He just couldn't get it together. He couldn't pull the kind of repentance together that he needed to pull together. Which is why it's so dangerous to say, I'm just going to live my own life, and then at the end of, the end of my days I'm going to repent. And I would say to you, I'd say to anyone who says that, how do you know when you get there that you're going to be able to pull together the kind of repentance that you need to pull together? God will always forgive his people. The scriptures are clear about that. God will always be gracious toward his people. What's clear in the scriptures are is that people are not always able to muster the heart up to be in the right place to repent. You only have to look at the story in the prodigal son in Luke 15 verse 17. The story goes that the son left his father, took his inheritance uh, that was due to him, went off and wasted it all. He ended up in a pigsty. He took advantage of his father. And it says this thing. It's got this one line in uh, Luke 15. It says, but when he came to himself. Now let me ask you this. Who ever decides to come to themselves? Did you decide to wake up this morning? Who ever decides to come out of general anaesthetic? No one does. And if I were to ask you at this point in time, how many times can you number in your life where you've had crystal clear clarity, the highest level of clarity of self-knowledge and, and, and God, I reckon it would be less than 10. And I'm not saying that you don't have this ongoing thing every day where God's bringing more and more revelation and knowledge of yourself and knowledge of him. Yeah, that's all happening and that's really important. But I'm just talking about moments where you just go, oh, I can see it. I can just see it. I can just see it with clarity. Right now, I'll tell you, for me, it would be probably four times in my life. And I want to suggest to you today that that's Bohemian Crystal. And you don't muck around with that. And that's what the writer of Hebrews want to say to you today. If God pulls on you and he's working in you and he's working to have you turn and to come back to him, don't be lazy with it. Respond to it. Treasure it. Put it in cotton wool. And make that thing last as long as you can to bring about all of the change that God wants to bring about for you. Treasure the decisions that you've made. Don't make hasty, dumb decisions. Be really, really careful because you don't know that there might be a decision that you make that takes you to a point where you can't repent. 1 John chapter 5 is clear about that. You see, you've got Moses in the Old Testament. Did God forgive Moses for getting angry? Yeah, he did. But you know what? He didn't get to go into the land of Canaan. And so we, we need to be careful. Like some of us, the, the Christian church has lots of truisms. All right? Nice little happy quotes that they say. One of them is, God always gives you a second chance. That's true, partially. Because God doesn't always restore to you what you could have had if you followed him in the first place. And so Moses died on a hill looking at the promised land instead of going in. Will God forgive you? Yes, if you repent properly and you turn to him, he'll forgive you. But you know, it's, there's so many things like that. You lose your virginity and you don't get it back. You can be recycled, but you can't reverse it. We need to be respectful of our decisions. We need to have a sense of carefulness about the decisions that we make. 
and valuing repentance when it comes our way in those extra clear, special ways. Now, am I saying you don't need to repent every day? No, I'm not. I mean, I think it was Luther who said all of life needs to be one of repentance. You just got to do it all the time. And repentance is like, I'm going to turn, I'm going to access God's forgiveness, I'm going to access His grace and His assistance and His help, and God's going to change me. Almost done. John Piper wrote this about Esau. Esau sold his own birthright for a single meal. That is, he looked down at the straight path that leads to life, and he saw adversity and hunger. And instead of believing that God was in it and working for his good as a loving, disciplining father, he sold it for a single meal and left the race. And the terrifying thing is, he could not return. He tried to repent, and he could not. He had gone too far. God will forgive all genuine repentance, no matter what you've done. But there is a hardening against God that goes over the line and can no longer repent. And this is meant as a very sober warning. So here's, here's where I want to finish today. There's a story in the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 5, where Jesus went to uh, a place called the Pool of Bethesda. They've actually found this. Archaeologically, they've dug up the Pool of Bethesda. He goes along there, and there's this dude there. And this was a place where all the lame, the invalids, the blind, they just lie there around this pool. And as legend would have it, at the film of Bethesda, if the water ruffled and you got into the water first, you'd get healed. And here lies a man who had been lame for 38 years. His problem is he can't get into the water when it ruffles. But he desperately needs to get in there. And Jesus comes along. I'm sure he would have known about this legend of the film of Bethesda. And he walks up to this man and you know what he says to him? He says, do you want to be healed? It's a good question. And I, I think Jesus would ask everyone here that today. Do you want to be healed? Now, I don't know whether the dude laughed or the people around him laughed. You know, maybe there's some Invalid there, who's was like a classical, practical Jacob dude, the invalid there, and he's going, oh, what do you reckon, you know? He's been lying here for 38 years. But you know why it's such a good question is because we don't always want to be healed. And I bet you that guy, probably by the time he'd been lying next to the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, I'll tell you this, it's probably become part of his identity. I'm the lame guy who lies next to the pool of Bethesda. I'm the guy who's been there 38 years. Maybe look at the marks on the wall of every mark there for every year that I've been on. I'm that guy. And all of a sudden, someone comes along and says, you don't have to be that guy anymore. Do you want to not be that guy? And I, th- I believe God would say that to every one of you here today. He said, do you want to keep being the guy that you are, or the lady that you are, the girl that you are? And he would say, you don't have to be. <coughs> now, it's, it might cost a little bit of surgical violence, but he says, you don't have to be that guy. And some of you have got used to walking with a limp. You don't even notice you've got it anymore. Everyone else does, probably. You don't. 
And God would say, you don't have to walk through the lead. Yeah, are you going to have a weakness the rest of your life? Am I saying that everything's going to be completely sorted out by the time you die or Jesus comes back? No, I'm not saying that. Can you get substantial healing? Are there some things that God's going to completely sort out? Absolutely, I think there are. I've got no doubt about that. And sometimes God's going to teach you how to fight it so that you don't live as much. He's going to strengthen things. He's going to sort things out. He's going to lift the drooping hands. Don't be happy being sick. Don't be content with being broken. This is what God's on about. And you know what? God's not ultimately on about this because the most important thing for him is that he wants you healed. You know what it is? Broken people who get healed by God become the most amazing light for him. People go, how did you get to be like that? Well, this amazing God who can do things far beyond what you can ask or even imagine. You know what he did? I got in and it was really painful and it was really uncomfortable and to be honest, 80% of the time I didn't even like it that much but he actually came in and he actually healed a whole bunch of stuff in my life and he could actually do that for you too. See, I reckon if we had 15 people in the project here who got the, who just absolutely pressed, like ran as hard as they could at as much of the wholeness of the healing that God's got for them and grasped the whole of as much as they possibly could, that'd be absolutely devastating to people out there. Because you know what? You know this. There's people breaking all over the place. It's like the project is never going to run out of a market for broken people, are we? All right? And we're actually the only ones who have got the product for the market. We've cornered it. All right? And the way that God wants to do it is he wants to get you right and for you to get other people right. True? That's exciting. So you've got to get right. And don't hear me saying, I've got to get right before I can tell others about Jesus. God specifically says to, uh, through Isaiah, I can't have seen Isaiah 40, I'm just floating off the sheet from my hip here, but he says there, he says, go down and your healingness will spring forth speedily as you go and serve me. All right? It's not about, let's get everyone right. Like, we're not going to get all introverted in the project and just say, let's get everyone right. No, what we're going to do is we're going to be introverted and extroverted at the same time. Well, let's just get out there and let's be tactical about it. Let's find a way that we can get the healing and the brokenness and the goodness of God to people who don't think they need it. But that's got to start with getting the healing and the goodness of God to people in here that don't think they need it. Amen? Okay, I'm going to pray, and I've got one thing I just want to share with you structurally for uh, about a minute or so, and then we'll be done. God, your word says in Isaiah 53 that you got broken so we could get healed. You laid down wholeness so that we could have it. So the ones who deserved brokenness get wholeness, and the one who deserved wholeness got brokenness. And you didn't just do it so we could all here in the project have a happy life. You did it for your namesake, for your glory, so that a whole bunch of healed people start kicking around this place in Toowoomba and Australia and the world, and you're doing it all over the place. A whole bunch of healed people start kicking around and people go, whoa, what, what happened to you? How do you get to be like that? And God, I pray that you'd help us at the project to live lives where people 
are prompted to ask the question by the holes in their lives. They go, how do you get to be like that? How do you handle that? I watch you and I just notice how you handle things. God, I pray that we would provoke that kind of response in people. And God, I pray that you'd raise up people in this church who know that they need to pursue healing. They need to strive for it. We've got to pray that this church be good at seeing you bring healing to people in the busted areas of their lives. And God, that you just keep healing all of us and bring us to a point of wholeness. Amen.